Good evening. Oh, are you this evening tide? Evening tide? Evening tide. That's normal, manageable degree of misery. But you slept so much today. You should be like roaring a go. Yeah, but now, now it's triggering the guilt. <laughs> but you have guilt over sleep? Yes. Oh, I can't with you. <laughs> I never once have felt guilty about sleeping. I, I, I luxuriate in my rest. Well, aren't you special? Aren't I? Aren't I special? I mean, but this is something I've I've just had to accept because as a child, I would literally fall asleep at the table while everyone was around me still talking and eating. And so I've just come to accept that this is who yeah, I am. Yeah, there's a type of person. That's the person that falls asleep halfway through the movie, no matter what movie it is. Yeah. I've fallen asleep on a date. I've fallen asleep at parties. I just, I just fall asleep and that's who I am. And I don't, I'm just not going to feel bad about it. One of my oldest friends is also like that. And, and you know who you are if you're listening. Well, today we have a new, a new thing. I mean, kind of a new thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an, it's an interview. It is an interview. It's, it's a new, it's a, it's normal in the sense that it's an interview, but it is, it is a massive interview in the sense that it is a three way. <laughs> it's a thruple. Uh-huh. Or is it a quintuple? Quint- right. Um, it's an orgy, I guess, at that point. A steaming podcast orgy. A porgy. And our partners were the cast of This Day in Esoteric History podcast. That's right. It's Jody Avergon, who you may know from other podcast work he's done in the past, like on the 538 podcast or ESPN's 30 for 30 podcasts. Uh, it's also... Uh, Kelly Carter Jackson, who's a historian who focuses on kind of abolitionist era of the U.S. and also has an interesting focus on violence, which we get into in the conversation. A and also uh, a, a wee bit. And then Nicole Hemmer, who rounds out the trio of this esoteric day in history. And she is a historian focused on kind of right-wing media. And she has a new book coming out. And actually, Kelly has a, a book coming out a little bit later too. So uh, all people to to be checking out and and keeping tabs on if you're history buffs as are we. Um, yeah, so the reason we invited them is because they're, the way that they take history and dissect it and have those kind of short-form conversations about a very minute event is is really like, like my kind of thing. Yeah. And, and they're also just like great voices to listen to. And I mean, it literally just great voices. Yeah. (laughs) The content's good too. Yes, yes, yes. But the voices, man. Uh, (laughs) The thing is that we invited them and didn't really think through how we're going to produce this. Yeah. (laughs) Each of them comes armed with knowledge and experience in a particular field that deserve a lot of expounding and about which they can talk brilliantly. Jody covered politics as a journalist. Nikki is a historian who focuses a lot on the ins and out of conservative media, the characters, the culture, the incentives, something that, as you know, I'm fascinated with. And, and Kelly is a historian focused on civil rights, abolition, and the role of violence in black liberation, all of which are such meaty topics. And we barely got to get a, a snack of a bite out of them. We, 
barely began to start arguing. And the thing was, well, on the bright side, we, we got to see them in their natural groove, kind of interacting as a team, as friends. On the other, it also meant that we didn't really get to drill into any of their um, topics of expertise, which is often, you know, the point of our, of our pod. One thing that we did get to hear their collective thoughts on is the role of history in the public discourse, which is something that I sometimes get to. Where is it useful and where isn't it to think historically? Right. Specifically in like the 21st century today in which historians are expected to be on Twitter or at least converse with the public in using social media in ways that they weren't expected to in the past and what that means for good and ill uh, for the history profession. Right. And specifically when it's a trope of the, the political discourse and the culture war to use history mm. as a weapon. Right. You are the path to the next Hitler or you are the, the new Stalin or you are whatever other historical example that I only know in the most superficial level because I heard other people mention it on Twitter. Right. So where I really felt guilty, though, is when we got to the question of violence, because Kelly takes this question of when is violence legitimate as a political tool? And even beyond that, what do we even mean when we talk about violence in the context of Black American history? And Kelly takes these questions seriously. She scrutinizes over them. And these are difficult and deep questions. And if anybody on the right or the left tells you otherwise, it means they, they haven't thought about it at all. And I would have loved to explore this further because a lot of the thought about violence and I guess generally civil rights is now marred by the inanity of the public conversation about these topics or about the current iterations of this conflict. And rarely is it done seriously. But Kelly does take it seriously and reaches some provocative conclusions. And now these are ideas that we have engaged with somewhat in the past on the pod. But I believe that most of the guests who got into this topic were either from the classical liberal tradition or libertarian or even uh, conservative. But Kelly comes at it from a progressive perspective. And her conclusions, her view is something that I don't think we got to engage enough on this pod. There are parts that I agree with. There are many parts that I don't. But I would have loved to learn more and to push back more and to actually get to appreciate her ideas more fully. So consider what we have as an appetizer. And hopefully next time we'll get some more. So yeah, mm. yeah, I feel, uh, <laughs> I feel guilty. I feel guilty. Mm. A lot of guilt in today. Christian, good Christian guilt. The good <laughs> Christian guilt of the Jew. No, but I also wish that we had kind of fleshed out some of those things more. But there was only so, so we were already a bit over time as we were getting into that conversation. And then I also wanted to make sure we saved time to talk about democracy because Jody, Kelly, and Nicole are also part of the pro-democracy podcast coalition that we are part of, which we talked about in our last episode, uh, which is just a group of podcasters who are doing, you know, their bit to promote uh, the the future of liberal democracy. Right. Although here too, we only began to scratch the surface because we were starting to touch an interesting 
uh, tension on the very definition of liberal democracy or what it is that matters in this procedural concept of representation. And is it representation itself? Is it the values that are uh, expressed by it? And if it's the values, which values? Nikki and I started talking about it, but uh, and even arguing about it a little bit, but I, I think another place where we could totally deserve another hour of exploration. Despite, you know, limitations, we are humans and time is, you know, finite in the pod world. I think it's still, it's still a good time. And it's still a good excuse to think about history, media, violence, democracy, get a little frothy teaser of all these topics. Well, and we have a bunch of more interviews. Um, in the docket. On, on the, the docket, docket. Ready to go um, from diff- very, very different perspectives. And we think you, you might enjoy them. Uh, so um, we'll, we'll stay tuned. And we are on certain things. Uh, you can find us on uncertain.sopsec.com or, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also publish the occasional newsletter uh, with some impressionistic notes about the world, art, politics, madness, etc. And it's also in the Uncertain website, but you'll have to opt in to Inscrutable. That's the name of the newsletter, Inscrutable. So if you're already signed up, just just check the box to get the newsletter. And with that, Jody Avergon, Kelly Carter-Jackson, and Nicole Hebert. All right. Well, thank you all so much for for joining us today. This is fun to have this many people in one virtual space at one time. So let's see how it goes. Um, I guess first question for you all would just be, you know, what is the origin story of of your podcast? How did this this trio come to be? I think uh, well, you start that one, starts, Jody. I guess, yeah, it start, yeah it starts that's with you, Jody. And, 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 <laughs> yes, I guess so. Um, I mean, I, you know, I uh, was at ESPN and this place called 30 for 30 and then 538 for a long time. And then um, at the beginning of 2020, before I knew what 2020 was going to be, you know, left and was always sort of noodling in the back of my head about um, starting a history podcast. I, and we can get into this, but, you know, because I just feel like history having a moment. And I found that even when I was a journalist sort of kept covering more current affairs stuff, I just kept being most fascinated by historical stories. And so when I was trying to cook up an idea for, for a show, especially also to work with Radiotopia, who I've always wanted to work with, it was just like, well, I feel like history is kind of going to be the lens. And in part, it was also a way to not have to cover the 2020 election. I didn't know what 2020 was going to be, of course, but I mean, I was just like, I don't think I want to go through another election going day by day covering this. But, you know, I want to feel engaged. And Tom's and laughing because like he was also covering the elections. Yeah, I mean, point. I covered 2016 yeah. and it's like, I feel like I'm still catching up on sleep, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so that was, you know, that was sort of the origin. And then, you know, honestly, an, uh, another part of it is also like, yeah, the origin was I wanted more sleep. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then the other part of it was also like, I had this notion of like a short podcast, right? Like I was just like, can we do a short multi multiple times a week kind of show? And then um, I started chatting with folks about, you know, who are some historians we can rope in, who are some interesting people to talk to. And Nikki and I met one time uh, at a coffee shop, like it must've been like late February of 2020. And then the pandemic hit, of course. And we, I think we've met maybe once since then. Um, And then and then Kelly had been a guest a couple times, and then about a year into the show, Kelly came on board as a third host, and now we have the sort of three of us doing this show. But, you know, we've all met each other in person once 
Wow. We've been in a room together. And, you know, <laughs> we've done like 300, 200, I think 300 episodes actually, right around now, something like 300 episodes. So, yeah. Um, so I'm actually interested that you started, Jody. you were thinking about this pivot before 2020, because I think for Adam and I, when we, we started the, the podcast and originally as a blog in uh, the summer of 2020, and we were both feeling this pull to history as yeah. well, because it just felt like, how do you understand what's happening? How do I look back in time to people who've gone through harder things or similar things. Uh, and then we were kind of doing that exercise a little bit of kind of like, I was looking into like the Spanish influenza, like a lot of people sure, were, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but you were feeling that before. So what, what, where do you think well, that pull was coming from? I mean, I think the, you know, the sort of political era we're living in now, and that's a big part of what I've done is just sort of political journalism. Um, but, you know, in 2016, I mean, I think it was a really important way to try and understand Trump was both to understand what's happening in this country right now, but also understand Trump and, you know, Kelly and Nikki are so good at this, but like understand Trump as a product of historical forces. Um, and so once you start to do that, but then even like I did this whole my other sort of world of sports documentaries, 30 for 30, but those are historical and those are like trying to understand through a lens of sports a sort of how this country works. And so it just, yeah, I just found myself over and over being like history is this through line. And I'll just say one thing, but I'm very curious kind of what Nikki and Kelly think about this, but you know, that notion of history as a, like, I don't mean this in a bad way, like history is comfort in a sense of like at some fundamental level, like we've been through some stuff before. Um, and I know that that can mollify too. And, but I also do think like there's something there that I think a lot of people are, are finding a, a connection to. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, it's interesting to look at it from the perspective of a historian engaging with the broader world, right? Um, to find, I would say, you know, I had been a columnist since late 2013. And at the time that I was doing that, there were certainly some historians who were doing it, but not a ton. And yet within just a few years, it was clear that there was a deep, deep hunger for historical analysis. And I had found that I had more opportunities than I knew what to do with, but also that like, you know, historians specialize. So I knew a lot about 20th century politics. I knew a lot about conservatism and media, but there was so much more that people wanted to know. And that's why I thought that like, you know, I helped to found this section at the Washington Post called Made by History. And what was so important about that was to get more historians giving us context and giving us a way for to understand what was happening. Because it was kind of an all hands on deck moment by, you know, we launched in the summer of 2017. Um, and of course, what happens just a few months later is the um, the white nationalist terrorism in Charlottesville. And that was a, that was a battle, obviously, over over white supremacy, but it was a battle over history. They were fighting over a statue. And of course, it wasn't about the statue, but it was about who controls the stories that we tell about our past and about who we are. And so there was a sense that not only was there this appetite for history, but it was at the the center of our politics. And two years later, the 1619 Project comes out. And it has been, I think, just at the center of so many really important battles um, over the past several years. It's kind of funny because uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a historian. And I, I was joking, but um, 
they asked me like, oh, so what do you do? And I was like, I'm saving lives. And they're like, they were like saving lives. And you don't save lives. And I was like, no, but I feel like I'm an intellectual first responder. And they're like, what? Because I'm like, think about it. When when you think about Russia and Ukraine, when you think about January 6th, when you think about these big historical moments, the first thing the media does is like, historian, expert, make it make sense. You know, they want to know like, how do we understand this moment? How do we have um, like a, a proper perspective about be it the political, the social, the economic, what have you. And so, um, yeah, it sounds silly to say an intellectual first responder, but at the same time, I stand by the fact that like when, when stuff goes down, it's the historians (laughs) that are there to try to make sense of it. Can I ask each of you, Nikki and Kelly, because Nikki has sort of said this to me when we were thinking about the show, this idea of where we are now as a product of history, not, and not just I think the sort of like simple first responder thing you could do, Kelly, is be like, well, this is a lot like that moment that mm-hmm. happened in the past. And there's like that serotonin hit of like, oh, look at all these parallels. How neat. And then you stop there. And I think the next level is more tracing it and realizing the evolution and realizing there's a continuum, not just not just a parallel, but a continuum. Yeah, this is something that the the infighting among historians about some of this, when um, there's pushback against public engagement, the critique is always, oh, but it's so facile. It's just like, oh, this thing happened and it's exactly like that thing. I think it, at some point there had been an assassination of a minor politician in Turkey or somewhere and everyone on the Internet started freaking out that this is this is just like the start mm. of World War One. It's in the exact same place and in the exact mm. same thing happen. And it doesn't matter that you've never heard of this guy before. We're headed into world war. And it's that Mm. kind of too easy analogizing (laughs) that I think, A, it can give historians a bad rap, but it's so easy to Mm -hmm. do. And you've seen it throughout the pandemic as well, right? Like people are just like 1918, 1918, 1918. And, you know, it's, it's valuable to look and see how people have responded to pandemics in the past. But we are 100 years past that, and a lot has happened, and the politics are different, and the circumstances are different, and the technology is different, and we are different. And we can look back at 1918 and think about it in a way that people in 1918 couldn't. And so you're exactly right, Jody, that taking the time to think about how the past constructs the present is a much more useful way of being a uh, both a first responder and then being a long-term care historian. <laughs> I love the metaphor. <laughs> you see what I did there? <laughs> uh, uh, you actually brought up my what I was going to bring up as a second question to this because I uh, I, I kind of had the reverse journey. I suppose I I started as uh, in in history and on track to uh, get deeper into scholarship, and then I was uh, hijacked by by the the simplicity and, and shallowness of journalism. It's just. So, <laughs> and, and, I, I know that path well. <laughs> uh, but the um, but a problem that you know where, where my my erstwhile buried, uh, uh, oft ignored historian sometimes uh, raises his head in 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 anger is when I see those type of of oversimplified comparisons, or when people try to use history as mm-hmm. just a kind of a, a decision making tool you you start getting all those cliche 
metaphors or history repeats itself or history rhymes or history is, is cyclical. You can see it being used in the public debate as, as an argument Like sometimes people say, oh, you shouldn't be too worried about uh, this or that because, you know, just a pendulum swing uh. of history. And it's like, okay, there's no pendulum. There's no, there are no rhymes. Yeah. Like history is, is, is what it is. And the only, the only utility it has is in trying to kind of think of the moment. Like, like you said, it, it, it enriches our understanding of who we are and maybe why we are where we are, but it doesn't tell us where yeah. we're going. We're not, I mean, unless you're really into, I guess, uh, pleiodynamics or... <laughs> 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 you know, it's it's funny too because like, so no histor- all historians will say this: history is not inevitable. It is not inevitable. Meaning, the Civil War is not inevitable. the The Fifteenth Amendment is not inevitable, or the Nineteenth Amendment is not inevitable. It's not like, of course, women mm-hmm. were going to get the right to vote. Of course, we were going to abolish slavery. None of those things just happen. All of those things require right. struggle. They require people actively working for those those goals. Um, but I think if you're not careful, you can you can think that we are constantly on this like stair step towards justice and equality and this progressive world. And that's actually right. not true at all. I mean, in a lot of ways, we see how you know, the, the climbs are, are mountains and valleys, and it's not predictable in terms of whether or not something is going to work toward people's favor or whether or not something's going to cause like cataclysmic harm. Um, those things we just don't know. It's like, you know, when you hear that phrase, oh, we've gotten through this before, it's almost always we've gotten through this before with a lot of struggle and a lot of suffering. Right. And, <laughs> uh, and like, the, hopefully we learned, learned some lessons and tried to, you know, and make it do better this time around. Yeah. You know, there's that famous um, Martin Luther King Jr. quote that Barack Obama used to invoke all the time. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And there is a beautiful quote. And I think that King understood Mm. that it didn't just mean, oh, inevitably it bends towards justice, right? You have to bend it. And that's the, the thing that's often lost is history is a set of actions, right? It's actions people took in order to create the next thing. And so it's not inevitable. The choices that you're making now is what creates the history of the future. And so it, there is this kind of um, relinquishing of agency that happens sometimes where they're like, oh, you're just, people, people mm-hmm. managed in the past. It was fine. Well, people acted in the past. And that's why things unfolded it, the way they did. Hearing you talk made me think of the... The, I guess the bigger uh, or meta historiographical question and the different ways in which different parts or different ideologies use history, harness history to understand themselves. And mm-hmm. I guess one interesting distinction, and, and maybe this is kind of going into uh, Nikki's bailiwick, uh, the, the, dis- the difference between how, I guess, uh, uh, progressives and conservatives use or under, history to understand their their place tends to be in if 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 I may oversimplify the the difference between um, a general sense of metaphysical optimism to kind of catastrophical <laughs> sense of constant decline. <laughs> conservatives will always see it as we are a constant decline, basically since the Middle Ages, back in the glory days of of. of Catholic dominance. We were just being going downhill. And with progressives, there is the sense of hope. Yeah, sure. We we might need to, you know, quote unquote, do the work, but 
ultimately, there is a movement to the world and progress in itself implies something good. And both of them ha- are, you know, they're beautiful stories or at least interesting stories. And both of them are potentially very dangerous when you, you get too cut up with the illusion and losing track of what you actually want to see happen in the world. Right. It's what made Ronald Reagan such an unusual conservative was that he had this kind of optimism that he brought to his politics that is actually pretty unusual when it comes to conservatism, which tends to venerate a golden age in the past. Um, it, it's interesting, too, about the the utility or even we'll either call it the political uses or the weaponization of history. If you go back five years, uh, five years ago, the top-selling history books mm-hmm. in the United States were all written by conservatives. They were written by Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly and Brian Kilmeade. And so there is a way that the right is also very busily mm. constructing a usable past. And it, it speaks to how politically important conservatism is, that that is where a lot of the the energy is going, where a lot of the money is going, um, that there is a that battleground history Mm -hmm. is very much a part of our politics today. It seems kind of ironic, though, that this is uh, the the model for history on the on the left versus the right. Because when I look around today, when when I look at the discourse on the left, it feels so uh, catastrophic. Uh, Everything feels like it's the worst it's ever been ever. Whereas, and that's where, where I kind of tend to ideologically fall. I'm 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 more of a lefty. But yet, when uh, doing this podcast, we've kind of talked to more folks on the right, and I'm often struck by how optimistic they are in terms of like, you know, things aren't so bad. Things have, you know, gotten on the whole pretty bad, I pretty good for a lot of people. I think libertarians are the optimists. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't, is, I, it? I want, is it the yeah. libertarians? <laughs> so work itself yeah, out. It, 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 and I think you have to be, right? You have to be believing some kind of historical paradigm where things just solve themselves out and if left uninterrupted by, you know, government. A fundamental optimism about Hmm. human nature. Or at least more pessimism about human nature when having too much power. But yeah, they also have a historical metaphorical bias where there's too much or a lot of, but there's a lot of confidence in the ability of human interactions to sort themselves out. I mean, I do, I think Vanessa share that sort of sense that like there's more optimism or enthusiasm among conservatives right now. Part of it might just be like, it's been a, fairly good couple election cycles <laughs> mm. or whatever. But 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 also there's like mm. deep apocalyptic language sort of undergirding a lot of modern conservatism. Mm-hmm. And also down, I think, you know, there's a sort of tit for tat dynamic. It's it's starting to ramp up the tension among among uh progressives as well. But like Nikki, you track this stuff so well, but like how do you balance that kind of um, that sense of optimism that's maybe out there with also, or that sense of winning that might be out there with also uh. just like really, really dire language. Um, yeah, the apocalyptic language is, is vitally important to the right. And I think to mm-hmm. a certain extent uh, to parts of the left as well. Um, you know, I, I think, again, it's, it's that mix of long-term and short-term thinking. Why right now, um, if you listen to say, um, ruthless or a podcast like that. So a right-wing podcast, are they so happy? Well, they're so happy because they have a very good sense that they're going to do well in the 2022 elections. They control six out of the nine seats on the Supreme Court. Um, But what are the actions that they're hoping for? They're hoping for a kind of rollback 
in uh, American politics, like a rollback of the winds of the left, um, uh, kind of make America great again, return to the 1950s kind of politics. So it, it it's mm-hmm. a mix of things. Right. Um, and it, it doesn't have a. And if you ask Sora Bamari, it's a rollback to yeah. the to the 1600s. I was going to say the 19th to, to the century. 16th, <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, you have to think about these different factions. Yeah. Um, because you definitely have like folks who want to go back to the Lochner era, mm. which is an era of basically deregulation and child labor. And the government can't tell mm. you what to do about anything, particularly if you're wealthy. Um, but there is this move of um, sort of what we might call first things conservatives. First things is a magazine that reflects a lot of these positions where it really is. It's a it's a rejection of liberalism um, and not just like Small liberalism L. in the United States, but the, the very idea of enlightenment liberalism. Yeah. Um, and that that has a big following on the right. And it it does come from a kind of apocalypticism. I mean, you see it in the rhetoric of, of Donald Trump. Remember what his um, 2016 uh, or 2017, I suppose, uh, inauguration address yeah. was about. It was about American carnage and about how much of a decline the U.S. had seen. And that declension narrative um, is very, very powerful on the right. Um, but again, you know, it's important to make distinctions between like liberals and leftists. But traditionally, um, liberals have been more bright-siders and uh, leftists have been a little more concerned about what the future looks like. And I think you see that around climate policy. You see that around um, certainly the the fate of democracy. And because uh-huh. of the uh, traumas of the last few years, everything from the pandemic to the insurrection, to the war now breaking out in Europe. Um, A lot of people are joining (laughs) that sense that things are falling apart. And I I might just call them the reality-based community because, you know, it's, it's not been a good few years. I'm curious, you know, as you're looking at the way rhetoric is shifting in the present day, um, what are the, what are the sources that, you're looking at is it is it still the media like if you as a historian when you go back and you're trying to analyze in a historical period okay the rhetoric was such i can see you know these newspapers calling things this way um but today it feels more diffuse i would imagine but maybe i'm wrong you 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 all are the historians you tell me um so how are how are what are you tracking in order to have a sense of where is the rhetoric going what are what are the what's the language um, and what are the how are the narratives emerging, and where are they emerging? Mm. I feel like social media drives a lot. The news and social media drives a lot of the rhetoric and and then that spills out into like public spaces and public and and interactions that we have with other people when we're talking about these bigger ideas. Um, you know, as a it's funny, when you're a professor or when you're a scholar or a historian, like so much of the conversations that you have are, are just esoteric, right? They're like, they're like this, you know, you're in a room of like 10 or 12 people talking about, you know, some obscure journal article or whatever. And it doesn't, it does not resonate at all with, um, you know, what's happening in the larger public. But I, I feel like they are, you know, op-eds and they're these much shorter articles that are much more, uh, 
written and accessible for the public for people to sort of chew on and talk about than it is like someone's much more likely to read what Nikki wrote for for CNN than what I wrote for the Journal of Slavery and Abolition. You know, like it's not mm-hmm. those conversations happen almost in, in two different levels in two different spaces. And so um mm-hmm. I feel like now I have to have like one foot in both worlds where 10, mm-hmm. five, 10 years ago, that was not the case. It was, I could just write for my crowd or I could just write for, you know, the other 19th century historians. And that was kind of it. That's how you're going to get tenure and you keep it moving. Now you have to be engaged in these larger conversations in order to have like relevancy or in order to have some sort of platform that speaks to these bigger ideas. Oh my God, Kelly. It's so funny. <laughs> there were so many things when you were, I got like post-traumatic flashbacks as you were talking about those <laughs> esoteric conversations. I remember my, my, I don't remember like some of my early years studying history. I remember a, a moment in, uh, in class going over some research paper about, I don't know, something like how uh, like the change in potato crops affected the late Roman empire or something like that. And I was just, my brain just froze. And I was like, what am I doing here? What is this? (laughs) But, but you know, one, one interesting thing though, just that dynamic of, I mean, every world, no matter your profession, no matter what your world is, you know, you have the sort of like conversations about, your world. And then you have the conversations that speak to the rest of the world. And there's, and, and, and I just think one of the interesting things is that, I mean, to some extent it's social media fueled, but it's like, those are blurring. And Uh, I just, so many times when there's stuff that's just like getting that, like people are fighting about stuff on social media or things are, you know, people are getting themselves in trouble. I'm like, this is a conversation right. that should have happened right. at the right. conference yeah. with 10 people <laughs> or in the break Where room. nobody was live tweeting yeah. out. Like this is like an HR, this is an HR yeah. dispute or this is whatever. This, this is yeah. the normal stuff that happens when you have a small insular world where people really care and they have all these personal dynamics that no one knows about. And now all of a sudden it's all happening super messy out in public where people have very limited information, very limited context, but they still can, can chime in and uh-huh. pile on and all that stuff. Um, so but, it is an interesting blurring. But at the same time, I think for academia it's like so wonderful that it's blurring and that like yeah. this change that kelly described has happened i mean are, kelly nikki do you feel like there are still people who are what's the reverse of is it gatekeeper? Mm. what's the right word but like people who are just saying like no academics should just stay behind the mm. the wall and just talk to each other the ivory tower funny I funny know. you should say that jody because there was just a piece <laughs> in the chronicle of higher education right. sorry um, i don't subscribe <laughs> oh you don't it's not <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but i have strong but if someone were to tweet about it i have very strong yes. well, but that, that's the thing I, uh, I i did not sit down to the chronicle of higher education but i did see a tweet about this because the person fired a shot at Twitter. And if you fire a shot at Twitter, <laughs> Twitter notices. Um, but was basically saying that Twitter is antithetical to a scholarly mind, that the world of hot takes and quick reactions is the is is antithetical to the kind of deliberate thinking that scholars should be engaged in. And of course, if you're a scholar on Twitter, you're like, wait a <laughs> second. Um, but I will say there is something about the attention economy, Mm -hmm. like the way that our devices and our different media forms demand sort of constant interaction and draw our attention back, that does make it hard to do with a kind of deep thinking and um, immersion that sometimes you want to be able to do as a scholar. Now, I'm on Twitter. I've taken a Twitter break um, in order to write a book because I didn't find them 
terribly compatible. Um, but there is that kind of of gatekeeping mm-hmm. still, and some of it is jealousy over, you know, people like Helen Co- or, uh, uh, Heather mm-hmm. Cox Richardson, who is you know, making her millions over on Substack or Kevin Cruz, who has an audience of hundreds of thousands on Twitter. Um, But I do think that some of it does stem from a a kind of gatekeeping around what a scholarly life And what counts and what doesn't count. Like, it's, I think this conversation is so complicated because like, you know, it depends on what, in academia, it depends on what institution you're at. It depends on, are you at a research institution? Are you at a liberal arts college? Is it published or perish? You know, what are you writing articles? Are you writing books? Are your books trade press? Are they academic Mm. press? You know, like there's so many different pivots that scholars have to take that I'm always sort of leery about like when people are telling historians like, write your op-ed, get it out there because none of us have been trained in the academy (laughs) through grad school to do that kind of work. Nobody's been trained to be a podcaster. Nobody's been trained to like have, Hmm. you know, that kind of uh, infrastructure um, in place for them. They've only been trained to like to do research, to be in the archives, you know, to teach these classes, even when it comes to teaching, like the, the training that goes into that, it's so marginal (laughs) that it is not, um, it is, it's not for, for everyone, but I do think that for the gatekeepers or for the, the OGs who see younger younger historians and scholars writing up ads or doing podcasts or doing this work, there is sort of like some eyebrow raising because they don't know how to quantify that. You know, like they don't know how to mm-hmm. measure... Well, is a New York Times op-ed as good as, you know, the Journal of um, American History? You know, like, how do we evaluate impact um, and should this, should this count or should not this count? It's, there's, it's so messy and there's a lot of hateration, <laughs> too, <laughs> with people that are successful. Yeah, and there's a political economy around mm-hmm. it as well, right? Because so many people who are getting PhDs now don't have professorships to move into. And so they're trying to figure out ways that they can build a brand, that they can build a career that doesn't necessarily look like the traditional career in the academy because there's so so few options for that. And yet at the same time, not only have they not been trained in the skills of podcasting or public writing or journalism, but they're not necessarily going to be able to make bank doing those things either, Mm. right? Like you can create a newsletter, but that's not necessarily going to pay yeah. rent. And so there's a Oh yeah, real, journalism is not um, where you go for the lucrative <laughs> option. <laughs> right? Like I used to describe it as jumping from the Titanic onto the Lusitania. <laughs> right. When people were like, oh, just go join, just go be a journalist. And I'm like, oh, wow. have, you, have you looked at the field of journalism lately? <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I, 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 the stability I, It's is a constant com, uh, topic of discussion yeah, on this no, podcast. I, we often <laughs> dunk on media. No, and media I, always, I always joke about, like I, I was considering becoming a musician and then I decided to do the responsible thing and be a journalist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so as two historians who have taken the route of deciding to be public facing, to have work that I'm sure you also do things that are just for your the the in crowd of scholars looking at, you know, potato reports or whatever. But for the most, you also have decided that it's important that your work have some relevance for folks outside of the, the historical scholarly world. What do you two think is 
the most important work that historians can be doing now in this kind of new public facing reality? Uh. You know, I don't think that there's one answer Uh to that because I think we need this is a let a thousand flowers bloom kind of thing because you need people who are in the archives and doing the potato work, deep work, who are the potato work. But also, like, think about it as the difference between, like, when it comes to journalism, commentary versus reporting. Mm. Right. It, commentary is much more expensive. It or sorry, uh, reporting is much more expensive. It takes a much yes. longer time. Commentary is cheaper. It is easier. It sometimes drives a lot more traffic. Um, and, and I think that that is you need to have yeah. both. You need to be and you need to have that within a single person. Right. I need to fill up my cup by going into the archives, by reading you know, works of scholarship in order to learn new things about both history and about the world Mm -hmm. in order to have anything meaningful to say. So I don't think that there's any one place people should be putting their attention, but they should be following where their skills and their successes intersect. And so for me, like the part of the reason why I spend so much time writing is because that's where I've seen success. Mm -hmm. That's why I spend so much time podcasting because I've seen success in it. I find it valuable. um, And we don't need every single historian to have a podcast, (laughs) although we might be reaching that point. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but wait, there's also, there has to be at some point a dynamic where being public facing will help an institution too, right? I mean, like Kelly, Nikki, I am sure there will be people who come to your respective colleges because they've heard you on podcasts. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, our seeing you on TV. And I mean, the institution will have to recognize that as a, right. as a good thing, right? Yes. And I, I mean, Kelly, I'm interested <laughs> to hear what your thoughts are because you've been more in the academy than I have. I've, I've typically been in institutions attached to universities, but not in a history department. It, it matters, mm-hmm. right? We just have the systems haven't caught yeah. up to measure how it matters and to put a price tag on how it matters when it comes to advancement mm-hmm. when it comes to promotion or tenure or things like that. Um, but absolutely. I mean, the... And brands. Yeah. Like college brands. The opportunities that I've had have absolutely been enhanced by the fact that I have a national audience, um, that I've been able to carve out this space. But Kelly, what have you experienced sort of more within the academy? Yeah, w- within the academy, I mean, again, I think this is, it depends on where you are. I'm at a liberal arts college. I don't have graduate students or or I'm not, you know, at a university, but I think that in some ways it frees me up to do a lot of the things that I want to do, like like podcasts and like write op-eds and, and write books for trade press. I do feel like the more historians come into the field, I think the more we need to be equipping them to write for the public though. And that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that everybody goes straight to a trade press. You can still publish with you know, the University of Georgia or the University of Arkansas. But I think that when we write, we ought to make the messages clear and accessible because otherwise you're not doing the work that your research should accomplish, which is like when I think of someone like um, Deidre Cooper Owens, her book is about um, medical bondage and the mothers of gynecology. And she looks at Marion Sims and how black women and Irish women were experimented on and how they perfected the craft of gynecology by practicing on enslaved women. And then she takes that, those stories, those really 
horrific, traumatic stories, and then brings it up to the president and says, look at the high rates of infant mortality among Black women mm-hmm. and maternal mortality among Black women. And then you see these big pieces in like political or whatever that talk about these issues. And then you're like, oh, wow. Okay. So something that she wrote for tenure speaks in so many different platforms to what people are currently facing. Or when I think about like Elizabeth Hinton and mass incarceration or like Michelle Alexander in her book, The New Jim Crow, like these books change the game across the board. Mm-hmm. And eventually, in some instances, they change laws, they change policy, they change like how we approach a problem. And so that's what's so encouraging to me is to see how something like a 1,200-word op-ed, can go viral. And then the next thing you know, your your book is being used in like a congressional hearing, you know, like, or your yep. expertise is being used in, I mean, those are the sort of um, consequences or, or possible outcomes. Like, now that doesn't happen with every book, but like, I think that there's a power to that. And I think that colleges and universities are seeing that and they are attracted for better or for worse to how their branding can be connected to that expert or connected to that that viral book or project or whatever. Do you worry that the more this becomes the case, the more part of your academic trajectory um, is is being expected to or to at least attempt leaving uh, uh, some mark on the political landscape, if not a, a total paradigm shift like you're describing, but at least some, at least a scratch. Are you worried that that would incentivize being more provocative with your research in a way that some undermines rigor? Yes, absolutely. It's terrifying to me. Like I feel like there are a lot of people that write for clickbait. There are a lot of people that are not invested in doing the real progressive work for change and justice. And so, and you can see it, you can see it in the writing, you can see it in in their activism or lack thereof, like where for me, the work that I do, I feel like is not just political. It's also deeply personal. Like when I'm writing about violence and I'm writing about social movements and I'm thinking about how these things will not just impact, um, you know, my students, but my children, like they're, for me, it's, I take it very seriously, which is why I say no to a lot of things Mm -hmm. because I don't want to be corrupted by fame or clickbait or Twitter clicks. And like you can, it's a slippery slope trying to chase that next like viral story. Um, I think if you're more invested in doing work that matters and doing work that will help people, then that will show itself. But I also think that for those who are just trying to like, be bestsellers and all that stuff, that work doesn't have a tendency to last. It's like a trend. It pops up, pops out, and it doesn't really do anything. Kelly, you mentioned not wanting to be corrupted by by this. I just wonder, because this is something that's been on my mind a lot recently, and I brought up in a few other conversations, but uh, is uh, is there something on your mind in terms of like uh, seeing how that kind of fame can corrupt people? Are there people that whose scholarship you appreciate? Yes, I'm trying not. I'm trying so hard not to <laughs> name drop. Come on, Kelly. <laughs> I'll say some some of my least favorite people on Twitter are academics who have decided to ride the blue wave or whatever. (laughs) It's bad. I mean, like I, so I keep thinking about Eddie Glaude. He's a professor at um, Princeton and he was talking about James Baldwin and how James Baldwin like 
never really got, you know, he never won the Pulitzer. He never got like sort of the credit that he was due. And he said the reason why he doesn't sort of take off in the way that other writers or critics do, although, I mean, James Baldwin is famous and, and notable, <laughs> he but, okay. like, but he doesn't have the, you know, the Nobel, the MacArthur mm-hmm. genius, you know, all of that stuff. And he said it's because he he didn't take the bribe. He didn't take the bribe. And the bribe was, <laughs> hey, if you sanitize this story to make it more palatable to white audiences, then you you can get the MacArthur and you can go to Harvard and you can be this, you know, so celebrated scholar. And Bell Hooks said it best. She was like, you will never win these prizes um, not telling white people what they want to hear. <laughs> Like, if you are going to tell the truth, and the truth is hard to hear, you have to accept the fact that it, you're not going to get a, a lollipop at the end of the day when you talk about the harm that white supremacy causes, because that requires accountability. It requires responsibility. It requires you to act when you get that information. And so I do think there are scholars out there that are writing books that don't require people to act, that don't require people to change. And those are the books that tend to sell really well. Those are the books that make all of the the lists every now and then. And that that disturbs me because I'm just like, this book is trash. This book is garbage. <laughs> but like, um, because the book lacks an indictment. It lacks, it lacks a challenge to get people to really change. And and in it makes people feel better about the poor choices that they're making. Interesting. My impression was that indictments of this sort were actually what's selling right now. But pandering indictments, I guess, really aren't a real call to action. I do think that you have to have a a very clear sense of your values and yourself before you Mm. plunge into this world. I, you know, I mentioned that I took a step back from Twitter because I was writing a book, but I think I also took a step back because it was easier to see the path to getting lots of likes and to Mm. building a huge following on Twitter. And there, you know, there's a cachet in that, right? In an influence economy, the ability to leverage hundreds of thousands of followers is is a pretty enticing thing. Um, And it lets you get your ideas out there. But you do have to at times pander a bit. Um, Mm. And you do have to have a comment on everything that's happening. And for me, that just didn't feel, it didn't feel authentic to who I was. And especially with Twitter, where there's a real dunking culture. Mm. I have been really struggling. And I I don't know how you feel about this, Kelly and Jody, or how much, um, how you think about how you operate on Twitter it's so enticing. It's so easy. It's something that particularly in the Trump era, it was like, oh my God, look at this insane Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm. And let me put a spotlight on it. And I felt like every time I was putting a spotlight on it, I was making things worse. And Mm. I didn't want to operate in that particular media culture. And it's exhausting. It's exhausting. Like, like, Producing content like that, like I, I am not on Instagram at all. I think um, I have like maybe ten pictures up like, oh. from like three <laughs> years ago. Like, but I, I got off because 
I could not wrap my brain around like how many people were like posting video after video after video. I'm like, how are you doing this? Like, and knowing that those videos also have to be like perfectly mm-hmm. lit and all, of, which means multiple takes. I'm like, I don't, I don't have the time to like post. <laughs> or the money, you know? It's, like- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so exhausting. I'm like, what happened to just regular pictures? Like, or the constant like selfie overload. It just, it's too indulgent for me. And it, it's a time but- suck. And so, um, but that's not just Instagram, that's Twitter, that's Facebook, yeah. that's all of social media. And it gets mistaken for doing something yes. in the right. world. Oh, it that's feels the, like you're being productive. It's so terrible. <laughs> I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, well, first off, I've adopted a kind of like, don't talk about the thing that everyone is talking about rule for Twitter. Mm. Great rule. That's like subservient uh, to the just don't go on Twitter rule. Right. A little harder for me to do. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, the other, but I also, I think you don't just feel this on social media. I think you feel felt that. A lot of the Trump era sort of brought this out. And just in general, you know, I just don't think like I I don't think that there's 24 hours worth of news in a day. And so I don't think cable news like Mm -hmm. that's the poison pill at the heart of cable news. Um, And I also think like when I was hosting the 538 Politics podcast, I mean, one of my big frustrations with with that was when you host a show that is covering something sort of beat by beat it puts you in a position to kind of, we have to say something about this. And then every single day there was something that was like, we have to say something about this. And it was both exhausting, but also just like inadequate. Like I, I, you know, I got to the point. Yeah. yeah, And I got to the point where I was like, I think the best thing we can do is not put out an episode about this right now. Mm. Um, Uh. And just like sit back a, because everyone else is going to be yapping. But like at some point you have to just start to, uh, collate and, and triage, uh, uh, you know, the information that's out there. Jody, I have to say, I, so I've just finished, I'm sorry, I'm talking about this so much, but I've just finished writing this book and a big part of it was on the development of cable news in the 1990s. And as somebody who appears on cable news sometimes by the end, of the by the time I was done writing that book, I was like, oh, am I making the world worse Every time I am on one of these panels. Um, yeah. and I, Dom wanted CNN. He can commiserate for sure. Uh, well, 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 the flip side of that after. is if they don't, if, if they were going to get, they were going to get someone anyway. So I'd rather right. they've gotten right. you than someone who's going to say so. be yeah. you. That, that's the top of the slippery slope, Jody. Well, I suppose so. <laughs> mm. I, I got to tell you, the, the, and it's not just at CNN, it's many places that I work for, the, the ways you find to rationalize your participation oh, yeah. huh. in mm. a media institution that it, you see maybe as a force, if not for bad, then for, for boring. <laughs> After working for a while <laughs> in, in a place like that, you, you start really developing skilled justifications of, at least it's me behind the wheel I can I can move the machine in the right direction but I think I've just reached a point of despair about our media both mainstream and alternative about its ability <laughs> to actually fix itself uh, um it just it feels like we're fucked with between terrible incentives yeah I mean that's the case with politics too right I mean it's mm-hmm, just people mm-hmm. go in trying to change it and it's like instead and and that's good and noble when it should happen but you know it's like you have to you have to look much further upstream um, to to really start try and change things. 
And I'm none like, of these platforms allow one thing that I'm hoping is making a comeback, which is nuance. Right? right. Like you get no nuance when you have how many characters on Twitter? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> 280 on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. It's like you can't you can't boil these things down into these like, you know, nice, neat, packageable talking points like these big ideas or policy changes or whatever it is, it requires multifaceted approaches and nuance and prolonged ways of thinking about things that just can't play out in, in a, in a space that's met for like urgency. Right. Right. And that's, that applies to cable news as much as it does to Twitter. Mm -hmm. I think, even Uh though you have, you have all the hours at CNN, you're not going to get somebody who is going to sit down and, you know, talk to you about, about the details of something with depth. It will be within the, you know, circumscribed terms and shallow predetermined, you know, fault lines. Which I think is a real missed opportunity, especially in the media environment we're in now, where cable news used to be 24-hour cable news was the place that you went to get breaking news because otherwise you would only have that sort of like half-hour period in the evenings where you would get news updates or maybe in the morning or the evening newspaper. But now that I can get a push notification on my phone every time news breaks, cable news needs to be something different. And it's decided to be often a lot of hot takes analysis. And it has the opportunity to be a kind of more deliberative and deep dive space. Now, the question is, is there an audience for that? Um, are you going to make as much money doing a deep dive as you would doing a hot take? And Mm. I don't have the answers to that. I don't run a cable news network. Um, But I think that if you're thinking about what would be best for democracy more broadly um, (laughs) you might you might want that more deliberative conversation Uh, it's it's more tricky than that even i think because my i still have i cling to to the belief and obviously that's why we're doing this podcast because i do believe that there there is an audience for the 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 nuance the the slightly elongated and, and dissected conversation but do people have the attention for it? For it, people even mm. who would want it, who would benefit from those vegetables, do they have the the the, the patience to sit down and try to eat them? Do I, even give them a chance. I think they I think so. do. I mean, I'm a podcast evangelist, obviously, but I do think podcasting <laughs> is really good in this particular thing of Agreed. just slowing down, yes, give, having time, and then also I've you know, and this is why I thought you know, podcasting and five thirty eight were a good match at, at, in times, but you know, I also just have always felt like podcasting is the blessed place to sort of live in the uncertain mm-hmm. and the unknown and the, and, and, you know, you can just do things in terms of going down a road, but not necessarily having to land at a tidy firm answer in podcasting. That's a little harder to do on cable news or in a, even in an op-ed or whatever. And so I just think, um, you know, the flip side of that is, of course, you always get the kind of like patina of, I'm just asking questions and I'm just, uh, you know, exploring <laughs> and I'm, you know, and like we're, 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 doing four, lead, we're doing four hours on ivermectin and, you know, whatever, but it's like, uh, and so obviously like, again, it's more like, is this a good faith enterprise or a bad faith enterprise mm. is like a big part of it. But I do think just in terms of, uh, format and the kind of like, you know, I often think the sort of technology is, it dictates everything. Um, medium is the message. Um, you know, I do think podcasting like sets you up really well. To, for nuance and exploration. I, I think podcasts, if I can make a pitch for podcasts, I feel like <laughs> in the past maybe 
two, three years, certainly by the start of the pandemic. Like pandemic uh, uh, podcasts are how I get the bulk of my information. So like whether it's mm-hmm. the daily or like um, listening to Code Switch or um, or something fun like maintenance phase or whatever, um, or our new podcast, Opridemics, which is debuting at the end of March. There you go. Sorry, Shane. There you go. Sorry. Um, well done. <laughs> <laughs> but like I, I found that I can't really watch TV anymore for information. So when I, I try to watch like yeah. whether it's the news, just like CBS Evening News or something like that. I can't watch that and do dishes or watch that and do laundry or watch that and cook dinner. Like my attention span is just like, because it requires that I sit and watch and be still for 30 minutes in order to do that. But if I have a podcast, I can, I can multitask. Like I can take in long conversations while I'm doing other things and still be attentive to what I'm doing and to what I'm hearing in a way that just TV doesn't allow me to do. Yeah, it militates against the staticness of television. If you think about television yeah. as a medium that you have to consume in place, mm-hmm. right? You have to be mm-hmm. in front of the television or those of us who don't have TVs in front of the computer in order to watch it. But when it comes to podcasting, you can take it with you, right? It's there yeah. in your commute. It's there when you walk to the store. It's there when you walk your dog. Um, and so I, I guess we're just, everyone who is listening is actually listening to a podcast and so already sold, <laughs> but we're going to pitch you even harder on it. <laughs> um, I want to, oh, Vanessa, no, I, I, I was going to pivot us. To yeah, me too. Oh, we're yes. on sync. Yeah, great. Brilliant. <laughs> we're, uh, um, and I, I, I was trying to make a, a, a slightly convoluted segue, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. Um, it, but because I was thinking about this question of bringing in academics to the public sphere there that there, for, for me there was a bit of a you know be careful what you wish for experience <laughs> because as a when a lot of my focus in history um which i was studying in in israel in hebrew university uh was uh legal history and I, I, one of my favorite topics that i i looked into was um american legal history and and, and i remember writing several papers on critical legal theory Looking at it from the outside, I found the debate so fascinating and so deep because it included such profound discussions about the role of merit, of reason, of objective testimonials, of enlightenment values, all those deep questions posed by Richard Delgado, Patricia Williams, Nancy Levitt, and objected to by Judge Richard Posner. And the debate was so furious and meaningful, the challenging uh, where, where... Are we doing things right? Where are we doing things wrong? What should we uh, challenge as things that we've taken for granted? And and where are we going too far? This back and forth. I remember thinking as I was working about this, as I was writing about this argument, just, wow, why isn't this in the public <laughs> debate? It was like, you know, 2011. I was like, why is that not? <laughs> and like today I'm like, oh my God. Oh That's my God. careful what you wish for. Yeah. <laughs> Like, Were you holding a monkey's paw? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And now, like, 10 years later, we know that some critical race theory bill is being signed oh, into God. law around the country somewhere. My God, can we please not? Can we? I take it back. Um, so I wonder if this is good enough an excuse to talk about how scholarship deals with the uh, 
current political moment and, and maybe even bring in the question of violence, Kelly, if that's not too sharp of a segue, thinking about how a culture deals. I mean, how do you deal when you are locked out politically and epistemically mm. out of parts of the culture and what's the role of violence in that? Uh, take whatever you want, Kelly. <laughs> You know, this moment has been, like, the hardest in recent days to, like, especially I feel like last summer was was such, like, CRT was just, like, you couldn't, you couldn't turn on TV or, or, or a podcast without hearing about critical race theory or hearing about these um, town hall meetings and, and some of which, you know, delved into violence, like you had neighbor against neighbor and book banning and all of this. Um, and then turning in your curriculum and we want to see your lesson plans and like uh, witch hunts in some ways. I mean, it is um, startling just to see how, people have been motivated to dive into something they know so little about. (laughs) It's always mind-boggling when people are like, CRT is horrible. Okay, what is it? I don't know, (laughs) but I don't like it. I mean, it's, and some of these- And I find the defenders, so many defenders as well, (laughs) seem to know very little about it. They just know that they need to. That is true too. And so, um, I don't know, with my students, I often tell them that these battles really aren't about critical race theory at all. It's just about the 2022 election and the 2024 election and getting people motivated or activated um, to vote in one way or the other. Um, And that there are other ways that we use these sort of like um, boogeymans or or witch hunts to like get people out to the polls. Um, But it's, it's definitely depressing you know it's it and it makes it hard to have conversations when when people are making these sort of like cockamamie rationales about why students shouldn't be learning about ruby bridges you know or <laughs> why it's harmful to talk about jim crow for white children you know it's just it's mind boggling it's mind boggling we should say that Ruby Bridges is one of the very young girls who was desegregating schools in uh, in the 1950s. But Kelly, I'm also curious, you were, based on Twitter, in the middle of one of these storms in 2020 or 2021 because you work on violence. And you write about and talk about the violence that abolitionists engaged in and what yeah. is a more righteous cause than um, than ending slavery. And yeah. for me, like when I saw people reacting to say headlines about your work um, where it was like, hey, is, is violence sometimes necessary? And mm-hmm. that was about the level at which they engaged your work and not much deeper. So what was your experience <laughs> of being a historian oh of gosh. violence in this, this was- period? <laughs> This Thank was, you, Nikki, for smoothening the situation. <laughs> there was an article about this. I can't remember. Maybe last, late last year in the Guardian, just about um, Turning Point in USA and like how they had been mm-hmm. targeting professors because um, in the summer of 2020 and and thereafter, really every much every time I write an op-ed about violence, I get hate mail. I get hate mm-hmm. mail. I get um, you know called all kinds of names and death threats. And um, you know, one person sent me like a, a a postcard to my Wellesley office that had like 
Dante's Inferno or like some scary demons. Yikes. I don't know. It was like, I get these really like fanatical, crazy people that really don't engage with the outfit at all. They just see like, um, you know, the word violence or overthrow and then they like send me an email. It's a lot. So I'm not, my husband's much more bothered by it than I am. I kind of I kind of just keep asking, like, who's got the time? Who's got the time to go get a stamp? Like, who's got the time to, like, go to the post office? I'm, I mean, some of it's email, but even that, I'm like, who's got the time? But maybe it's because I'm always so tired and so busy. But, like, it's, it is definitely something that I want to have more conversations about, which is why my next book is also about violence, but understanding like the utility of it. And when I say that, I think people get kind of freaked out because they're like, Mm -hmm. are you condoning violence? And it's like, no, but we have to be honest in this country about how violence is played out, about how the abolitionists were very rational, Black abolitionists, when they're like, slavery starts in violence, it's sustained by violence, it's only going to be overthrown by violence. And they were very um, clear about like the Civil War and and seeing the Civil War is like inevitable in some ways. And I think you could say the same thing about like the long freedom struggle and how people have just always resisted oppression. Um, and also how, um, white supremacists have always like used violence as a way to maintain their power. Um, and we just, we, we don't allow people of color and marginalized groups to think about violence in the same way that oppressors are using and employing violence against them. Not saying that it's tit for tat or that it should be one or the other, but I do think that like, if we don't have honest conversations about how violence works and how violence oftentimes accelerates change um, or gets people to stop, then, um, then I don't think we can ever sort of see the things that we want to see. Um, Okay, no, it's lost. The thought is lost. But there was a, there was a really interesting question about Kelly and Nikki's work intersecting, and it is gone. So I'll. But throw no, it. our work does. We talk about two. We talk about the same two sides of the same coin. I feel like, like in some ways, my work is about like thinking about how do the powerless procure power? How do the uh, oppressed respond to their oppression? How? Mm-hmm. What should the role of the of the government be uh, um, in responding to political dissent, right? In in responding to these grievances, how do people like navigate change when they don't have the ballot, when they don't have citizenship? And then I feel like Nikki's work is like the opposite of like, how do people take the power that they have and maintain that power? (laughs) But convince themselves that they're oppressed. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Yeah, like that, that my people are people who have all of the power and present themselves as powerless. That's really interesting. And it's it's been interesting to watch over the past several, the past few years, because there has been this tendency in a lot of media, particularly right wing and intellectual dark web media, but also I think more broadly to draw comparisons between the insurrection at the Capitol and the George Floyd protests. And mm-hmm. it has this um, tendency to erase all of the police violence that happened in the summer of 2020, that there is violence that is recognized and there is violence that is erased. Mm -hmm. And it's just so interesting because we were all at some level of between like, "Mm -hmm, told you this was happening and gobsmacked at the kind of very public 
very ostentatious, very on-camera police violence that we saw across the summer of 2020. But when we have conversations about political violence now, that police violence disappears. I mean, I, I, I've thought a lot about this in the in the Trump era as well. And and I think like one of the first kind of wake up calls I got about Trumpism was in 2015 and 2016 during the election, sort of seeing the level of violence at Trump rallies. And then mm-hmm. there was also sort of reporting and polling that showed kind of like the appetite for violence among Trump supporters was just higher and is increasing. I think that's been a through line, but I've kind of drifted a little bit away from thinking about it as violence to exactly what Kelly and you and Nikki were just talking about, which is it's not exactly just that there's a lot, there's a greater appetite for violence around. It's more that like there's different ideas about the consequences of those violence. And I really think uh-huh. like impunity is the big word for me now. And just the sense mm-hmm. that like people, uh-huh. there's an expectation of impunity among certain people. And then other people, you know, I don't think marginalized groups have any expectation of operating with impunity right now. They're, they're, they're sort of thinking about violence might have changed, but the consequences of that violence are very clear to them. There's a quote that uh, Khalil Muhammad talks about all the time where he's like, white people commit crimes, but black people are criminals. And it's this idea that white people can like, you know, do all kinds of crazy things, but it's like, but that's not who they are. They just made a mistake. Boys will be boys, you know? And, but it's like, whether black people have committed crimes or not, they are criminals. And that is so hard to navigate around, especially outside the media, because you can have the same image and one can be like frat boys at a football game torching a car. And the other one can be like the death of Freddie Gray. And they're also torching a car. And those same behaviors are rendered completely differently within the media and, and within the within the press. Kelly, I think you meant to say that white people commit legitimate political discourse. Yeah. <laughs> This is some a topic that I I deeply um, struggle with as an outsider to American society, Uh, somebody raised in the Middle East and um, with surrounded by violence and 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 warfare. I started my journalism around the uh, Mm. Syrian civil war, so I I have a very it's a cautious a uh, uh, perspective on on violence and very con- and deep concern for you know I'd call it peace <laughs> broadly speaking um but <laughs> but it is something very interesting when you look at American history just how um in unable most um, American political ideologies are to conduct a serious honest discussion about the history of violence and how it interfaces with a history of class differences and racial differences and and ethnic cultural differences. The very myth of the American founding is integrally tied to, to violence, to the, the legitimacy of force when, when taken up by the public against a state that has encroached upon the rights of the mm-hmm. people. The legitimacy of violence against oppression is part, mm-hmm. it's core to American identity. Um, but the scary thing about discussing, I guess, uh, violence when it comes to uh, police violence um, versus, say, protester violence is how do you even have this conversation in a way that doesn't make people run away into their corners where 
we want to be able to talk about where state-sanctioned violence is a different category than protest violence or mob violence, but we should clearly delineate what we are defending and what we are against. Mm -hmm. And at a minimum, we need to acknowledge that when we're specifically talking about the racial component, white audiences, even the most self-proclaimed progressive ones, aren't going to be cheering or or responding fondly to anything that is actually Mm going to make them feel threatened which in turn will get exploited <laughs> by the, the Tucker Carlson's of the world who, who will talk about rampant yeah. progressive violence. I mean, it's not... I, I guess this takes us back to the Baldwin compromise that yes, we talked about. Yes, it does. It's not. It's two things. One, it's not a fair fight. So it's not, <laughs> you know, if, if people of color were to sort of like take up arms, I mean, that's not going to happen. Like that's, if you're bringing a knife to a street fight. Like the police force now... There are many militaries, so none of that is – there's no utility to that in the 21st Mm. century. In the 19th century, it makes a little bit more sense because the policing forces that exist are not – identical to what we have now it's it was very much much the the wild wild west when we think about how people interacted with one another um and i think that makes much more sense in in the 19th century so that's not a a direct line of like well the blackout frederick douglas did it so i'm gonna do it you know that doesn't (laughs) that doesn't work i also think that like we put too much emphasis on looking at nonviolence as a solution for oppressed people than we do telling oppressors to stop being violent. So like, right, fair enough. But then the question should be, how do you change the perception of criminality and reattach criminality to mm-hmm. oppressive forces? How do you yes. how do you delegitimize oppressive forces and decriminalize what's not right. actually violent? Which shouldn't mean legitimizing any sort of violence as long as it purports to be against oppression. Well, I tell my students, like when we talk about um, what I call the long freedom struggle, what others call like the civil rights movement, is that this is not a history of nonviolence. This is a history of a response to violence. This is a Mm -hmm. response to violence at the voting booth, violence at lunch counters, violence that, um, you know, bombs churches this is also something I'm talking about in my book, but, like, but it's the, <laughs> Say the name that, and the publisher. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's called the remedy. It's called Black Response to White Violence, and its basic books is uh, publishing it. And I look at this idea of like you know this is not the kinds of violence that Black people are trying to engage in is not a violence that creates victims. It's a violence that stops violence. It's meant to arrest the harm that's being Mm -hmm. caused. It's meant to get people to stop. And it is a much more defensive, protective way of looking at um, dissolving oppression than it is this sort of offensive, we're going to go in your home, we're going to steal your kids, you know, (laughs) like some sort of like uh, um, revolutionary, um, you know, uh, apocalypse or whatever. That's that's not what people um, have been advocating since the moment that Black people have been brought to this country. It is about having justice. But I think 
Brian Stevenson talks about this when he says mm-hmm. the opposite of, of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. And, you know, um, who else I'm thinking? It's Benjamin Crump who says, like, justice is not the cop goes to jail. Justice is the person is never killed, right? We, we never get to the point where we have to do this. We don't know what a world like that looks like. So, yeah. so it's hard to have these conversations because... We may know where we want to go, but we don't know how to get there. And I think that history operates as a prophylactic here because we can look at the the violence that Kelly writes about in her first book, where she writes about the violence of people who are enslaved or abolitionist. And you look at somebody like John Brown, who engages in what could be called terroristic violence, but he's doing it on mm-hmm. behalf of freeing people. Um, or mm-hmm. you could look at the You know, you can see video of a person punching a Nazi at Madison Square Garden in the late 1930s, and you will get far more people to applaud that than an image of somebody punching Richard Spencer in 2017. And I think that that sense that, oh, well, we have a clear sense of good guys Mm. versus bad guys when it comes to Mm. the past. But when it comes to the present, present, we're more tenuous about violence. And so something like Antifa, which, you know, not not all folks uh, associated with Antifa are willing to commit violence, but it's not off limits um, because they see themselves as responding to violent fascism and being willing to commit violence in order to stop fascism. When we see somebody using violence to stop fascism in the 1930s and 40s, that gets a lot of applause. When we see it happening in the 20-teens or the 2020s, people are much more on the fence about it. I'm not sure I want people to have this sort of binary idea of good and evil in real time. It's much easier to have it in retrospect. And even then, it's prone to abuse and could be dangerous. But even putting this question aside, I think that actually bringing up Antifa muddles the point a little, at least for me, because a lot of the activism, I don't know what to call it, of, of Antifa seems much more like a, a grudgy teeny, teen angst violence than real, like cloaked as <laughs> um, anti-fascism than real brave anti-fascism. Sometimes it can align, but some of the activism that at least I've like, I'm, I'm aware of seems to be much more performative violence than it is real, concrete, focused, civil rights-minded activism. Right. And I should say that I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who's interviewing anti-fascist in Charlottesville in 2017, as opposed to like right, exactly. Portland in right. 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for me, I, I guess, as a, um, as a journalist, it's something that I really want to be able to make more clear distinctions about because, you know, I, I don't find... I don't think anybody who looks at some of the reactions, including the more conflagrated protests in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, can think that these are just uh, theatrical or just performative. I think that, that that was a moment that even a, a lot of people on the right were were were, were stirred by this for a moment. <laughs> for a minute, so I'm sure. Just taking that as an extreme, and yes, on the yep. other hand, you will have uh, you'll have cases where people, you know, waving the flag of whatever is currently morally popular will commit their own injustices or even just their selfish little acts of absurd exhibitionist anarchy or pseudo activism. 
and I, I don't know, maybe there is use utility overall in terms of, you know, affecting the conversation and directing attention to the right places. The, just the fact that things are done under the right banner. And that's even assuming that we can agree on what the right banner is, which isn't a given. But I, I, I don't know, I, I worry that that it, it might actually dilute the moral cogency of more serious protests, like the ones against the over-militarization of police forces, for instance, which is something that is adversely affecting the lives of millions of people. I'm worried that failing to draw lines between real protesters and people who are just in it for the, for the kicks um, ends up hurting the real causes. No, it's hard. All of this is hard. It's hard. You know, like, it's not... I think the work that that I want to see be accomplished is not um it's not easy and I think anyone who is offering you like some sort of three point plan is selling you <laughs> snake oil you know what I mean like there is I can't remember what TV show it was well, they're like we'll solve racism by 2024 it's like no <laughs> I think no. it was those Starbucks cups where you were going to have a yeah. race conversation <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Like no, this is not this is not how how this happens. You know, we um, I say all the time we've been a country with slaves longer than we've been a country with free people, and so this work mm-hmm. takes time. It takes courage. I don't know. I I keep trying to get myself to reckon with this over and over again, and I get exhausted by it. <laughs> so you know, it's it's not something that you can just sort of like say no, violence won't work. But it's also something where you can't say, like, violence is the answer. It's so much more complicated than that. Mm. Well, speaking of things that take time and courage, well, we only have, like, four minutes left, so I want to make sure we talk about the the, the state of our democracy and how to preserve it (laughs) in four minutes or less, which is not really our MO. (laughs) It's just exactly like three-point plan to save democracy. Go. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I would, I would love to know, I mean, you all are thinking about this and you're seeing, you're seeing it from the historian's perspective, from the journalism perspective. I mean, what is, how do you diagnose the state of our democracy today? And why does it, why does it matter if it's, if it's in peril? So it's not great. Um, but it's also not great in a lot of small-D democratic countries. And I think that's important, that this is a, an international problem, that this is a response to a number of global forces. One of the things, I mean, I don't have, I don't have a three-point plan, um, but one of the things that I've thought about a lot in recent years is that there has been a real appeal to norms in the past four or five years, that we we just need to return to norms. We need to return to the way that we used to do things. And I think that that is wrong. I think that we need to put values first. Like people who are um, devoted to the protection of democracy need to think very hard about what that means and like what values you want to defend. Because something like promoting a norm like the filibuster um, is not going to get you where you want to go. What is the what is the value that is at the heart of your politics? And so it really is, I think, a, the, a moment when people need to think about first things and need to think about core values and how to incorporate those in their politics um, rather than kind of more easily accessible things like compromise and bipartisanship and norms. And that. That has a lot to do with how we talk about 
politics too. I mean, you know, I think such a hallmark of modern political discourse or junkieism is sort of treating politics as this sort of like <laughs> small iteration tit for tat kind of thing. And Twitter sort of certainly enables that. But, you know, I think to Nikki's point, I mean, like Eitan Hirsch has written about, you know, kind of like you just need to take a step back and think about the core fundamental things you believe in and operate from that as opposed to politics as a game, which for all sorts of reasons, it's sort of the way we've, we've approached it. And then that leads to us losing sight of some of those very, very fundamental, fundamental values. Yeah. I'll just say, um, you know, I keep saying like, there are no answers. <laughs> I don't think that there are no answers, but I think, I think that one answer is saying this isn't it. (laughs) So maybe I don't have the solution per se. I don't have my three point plan, but, but this isn't it, but this is not working. But, (laughs) but the last norm, the last normal that you want to go back to, that was not the solution. And, And the more you can like sort of say what doesn't work, I think the more you can get closer to what does. And I will also say like, this is to bring it back around to kind of some of the, the, power of history you know it is this is one of those places where the kind of like recognition that there have been moments where people have said this doesn't work and things have changed and sometimes they've changed very quickly and like you know things Mm -hmm. got bad very quickly it seems like in a few in a span of a few years and things can sometimes get good quickly and you know i mean this is a whole other conversation but you know i've read as motivated reading here for sure but you know i've read sort of analysis of what's happening with with in Ukraine and Russia as potentially a moment that galvanizes a conversation about core democratic, you know, values and institutions and countries banding together. And, you know, and who knows, you know, and, and I think that there's that, that, that that's how history, history lurches in all sorts of different directions. And it's simple recognition that we might be at the sort of like about to lurch. <laughs> but what, what are those is, is core important. values that, that, I mean, assuming, the, I personally see democracy as as a vehicle and, and a tool for for values, not the value in itself. I, I, personally, I, I mean, listeners of the pod know this, I, I, I very much into small <laughs> L liberalism. I, I, I think that's, that's, that, that is one of my core values. And I, again, it's, well, much of it is informed by the context of growing up in the Middle East. And I, I'm wondering what, what these values are for you, because, because again, democracy is, is a tool and can be in the service of oppression or in the service of liberation. Yeah, I'm high-fiving you over here because I think that (laughs) just like raw democracy is not in and of itself the thing that we should be aiming for, right? Democracy Mm -hmm. in its idealized form came paired with a protection of rights, that it was about representation and, you know, it wasn't about representation in the seven, you know, 1700s, Um, but that it, it, this idea that, I think it was about representation in the set, but they just they just define representation quite narrowly. Right. They, yes. Yes. <laughs> right. It wasn't about equality in that yeah, period, right. even though they might have used the word equality. And so that it has to be about protecting people's ability to be their full selves. Mm. Um, and that sometimes means like be their full selves in negative ways, um, but mm. be their full selves in ways that don't involve them in the same shooting up a shopping mall and doesn't involve yeah. them committing hate crimes. Um, but that that gives people more space freed of the constraints of things like 
racism and misogyny. And like if we like there, it is a very long path to getting to a world in which those aren't constraints on people. So if we could focus on yeah. those things, that would be great. And then we could revisit um, some other some other things later on. But I think that's a pretty good place to start. Yeah, I just I, my whole thing lately has been like, how do we reduce harm? And when I say reduce harm, like, I think that, and this is maybe because I'm always talking to Elizabeth Hinton, we talk about crime a lot. And it's like, um, I can't remember, I think this might be Miriam Kaba too, but she says like, not all harms are crimes and not all crimes are harms. Mm -hmm. But what matters most is what is harmful. And I think that like, for me, trying to think about how we reduce harm in terms of how we treat each other, how we treat our environment, how we treat things that that should should matter to us, you know, how we protect someone's humanity, someone's dignity. Um, and most importantly, like, how do we keep people from hurting each other and themselves? And like, it just, if we could make that the sole focus of how we create policy, <laughs> of how we like operate in this world, harm reduction, like, I think that would be a step in the right direction. And yet it's so hard, right? Because if we did absolute harm reduction in Ukraine right now, mm. we could widen ourselves into I, World I, War III. I know. I, I, I think, well, yeah. uh, well um, this is, I, I would almost love to, like, <laughs> yeah. how are we doing yeah, on those four right. minutes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I would I'd I love know. to bring you back just I to, know. you know, open this topic up because, you know, when I hear phrases like harm reductions, I actually get negative chills. Because anything that is nebulous like harm can be easily exploited by by people who have who have the power to do uh, said reduction and just define the harm in a dangerously broad way. I have a lot of historical examples that come to mind, but we said that we're going to try to avoid the cheap historical references and pointers. But knowing how easily people can understand harm to mean whatever you're doing right now... <laughs> Uh, I, I just I just get put on edge whenever I hear talk about harm reduction or guaranteeing safety or anything like that. It it scares me. And I also understand that there is a problem when there's only negative rights that are being uh, guaranteed and, and it's, uh, under certain existing structures, just having a vague right to freedom is also insufficient because because if you can't exercise that freedom, that 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 right is devoid of content. Mm, mm-hmm, so I mm-hmm. understand that you also need to think more actively sometimes in terms of what the government can and can't do. But still, I'm mm. I'm, I'm I'm torn. I just I I, no. I, I get I'm scared of uh, people who mm. promise to take to take care of you. <laughs> you know, when the government promises to love you, it just doesn't usually end well <laughs> maybe not maybe i'm not thinking about the government as being like that loving father but like, <laughs> i'm thinking of it in terms of how how we treat each other and mm. how yeah. those individual Culturally. interactions can become mm. collective dynamics so that when we think about white supremacy it's not just the government it's not just one person either but like it is a larger sort of ecosystem of how we treat one another within the spaces that we operate and how we, when we operate off of this sort of like zero sum 
you know, if I win, you lose, if you lose, I win, you know, like those sort of dynamics, I think don't get at the heart of making sure that everyone has something, that everyone has shelter, that everyone Mm -hmm. has clean water or, you know, Mm -hmm. um, or, or justice, you know, like I hate to throw that word out there because even justice sounds like, you know, um, I don't know, world peace, love, like, (laughs) but I mean that in like, to, to step outside of the cliche of how we think of it. I mean that in a very real sense. Right. That it's not a trickle down phenomenon. Yeah. That justice is a, it comes up from community Mm. rather than down Mm -hmm. from government. Um, uh, Jody, do you have any uh, concluding words about the value of uh, democracy, liberal or no, otherwise? My concluding words is <laughs> my concluding thought is that you can tell why I chose to ha- have a podcast with these two brilliant historians. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I get to sit back and listen. <laughs> so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, Very this fun. Is fantastic. Yes, yes, this is great. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are Uncertain Pod on the social media, and we've got a bunch of new episodes coming for you. So stay tuned, share us with your friends and enemies, and until next time, stay sane.